me ask you to turn to the very front of your Bible where you will find the table of contents. On the table of contents, look at uh, the fourth book from the end of the Old Testament. You'll find Zephaniah and see what page number it is on in your Bible. And while you're doing that, uh, this may be one of the lesser known of the minor prophets. Minor just mean the shorter of the books. But this book uh, tells a lot about the coming day of the Lord. And the focus of it, especially early on, is to talk about the judgment and justice that is coming, and because of that, punishment that is coming to those who deserve that punishment. And then there's a turning point in the book. In chapter 2, verse 3, it says, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do His just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. So there we have the anger of the Lord being promised. This is coming. And yet, they are not left without hope. In fact, I said it's a turning point. And as we get then toward the end of the book, we see the answer to that anger, the answer to the fact that He is a just God, And we deserve, because of justice, we deserve punishment. And there is the looking forward to his answer in the day of the Lord. So we begin with verse 14 of chapter 3. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said of Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all uh, your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together, and I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, we ask now that even as we hear of the day of the Lord which is coming and we hear of how for some it will and ought to be frightful 
causing fear. And yet there is hope because of who you are and because of what you have done. Show us in the Lord Jesus how you have fulfilled this. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know this person. All of you know this person that I am about to describe. It may be a student on one of the campuses. It may be a fellow student of you who are in school. Maybe it's a a fellow worker. It might be your mother or your father or a child. But you know this person. They, though they may mean something to you, have no time for what you believe in terms of God. They don't want to hear about Christ or the cross or the church. They don't want to be invited to your church. They're just not interested. Some are angry when you bring that up. Others say, well, that's fine for you if it works for you. But I don't need that. And then there are others that just simply don't care at all. And you can't even really engage them about these things that are so important to you. And it's frustrating. And it's hurtful. And in some ways, you have practically given up. Oh, you would never admit that. You still pray for them from time to time. But you have done it for so long that it seems like there's not a whole lot of hope for them ever to change. What does God have to say? about all that. What's he have to say about that person? Well, I want us to hone in on specifically the verse that we have chosen for our theme verse of this year's missions conference, and that is verse 17. In dealing with what could be the answer to that question, he begins by talking about the presence of God with his people. Verse 17, The Lord your God is in your midst. Now, that's a common theme in the Old Testament. It's a common theme in the Scripture itself. You go all the way back to the the book of Genesis, and, and you see God having real communion with his people, Adam and Eve. He communicated with them, he fellowshiped with them, and then they went another direction. They chose to sin and rebel against him, and because of that, that communion, that union 
was broken. And so we see God coming into the garden and asking the question, Adam, where are you? Now, it's not as though this were some game of hide and seek where God really didn't know where he was. God was omniscient. Of course he knew where he was, but he was saying, Adam, where, where have you gone? We are no longer in that fellowship. And so, after that, God himself takes the initiative again, and by his grace, he says, there is an answer to this, and I'm going to provide that answer as he gives the gospel there in seed form in Genesis 3. And then throughout the Old Testament, we see him uh, punctuating again the emphasis that I am in your midst. He says, build this tabernacle, this tent. And that represents me being right in the middle. It's in the middle of your camp. And so every time you see that, you will be reminded that I am in the middle of my people. And then he, he, he gives instructions on building the temple itself. There I am. You come and you know that I am present. And then, that which was better than a building, God himself, in the incarnation, in Jesus Christ, he came. The word there for he came and dwelt among us literally means he tabernacled among us. And so there it is again, the tabernacle. And so Jesus walked among his people for a time. But then he was crucified, dead and buried. He rose again. He ascended into heaven. Before he did, though, he said in the Great Commission, he ended it with this same reassurance when he said, I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. And what he was saying is, even until the day of the Lord. I'm with you always. But he ascended into heaven And he did that which was even better for us. So no longer did he dwell in the midst of us in a tent or in a temple or even in Jesus. But the Spirit of the living God, the Holy Spirit, was sent to dwell inside of each of God's children. And so, wherever we are, he is in our midst, and his promise is fulfilled. He continued to reassure, and that reassurance is still necessary. A few years ago, there was a study done by U.S. News and World Report among those who call themselves Christian in the United States, and here was the question, in general, how often would you say you have experienced God's presence The replies, 10%. These are people that say they belong to Christ. 10% say never. 17% once or twice. 
several times, 23%. And only 49% said many times. Less than half of the people who claim Christ as their Lord and Savior say they have experienced Him in my midst. We are in need of that reassurance. And He is still in our midst. Now, after He reassures uh, of His presence, He characterizes the work of God in salvation. Look at verse 17 again. The phrase, a mighty one who will save. A mighty one who will save. In the devotional written by Pastor Kelly, uh, he used the phrase, mighty to save, from the New International Version. A great phrase. God is mighty to save. Now, let's talk about really what that entails. What kind of a God is he talking about there? Because You know, that's the kind of phrase you can just go right over without really thinking of it. If you don't have the devotional before you or you you don't just stop and and ponder on it some. Let's understand a little bit about uh, how other religions look at their God. And I think we'll see the contrast. For instance, in Buddhism you have self-reliance. Not God-reliance, self-reliance, following the eightfold path. The hopes, and the only hope is for an experience of nirvana. And hope that your ego ultimately will completely disappear. Or you have, for instance, Hinduism that deals with karma saying those things that we do in our life, they will come back and we will pay for them. Any negative thing that we do, we will have to in a future pay for it in some way. That's the nature of karma. It is inevitable, it is unavoidable, and there is no forgiveness when it comes to Hinduism. Or there's Islam, where the focus is submitting to Allah, keeping His obligations with the hope that I will do more that pleases Him than that displeases Him. That's my only hope. Now, I only mention these not to try to give you some uh, caricature or oversimplify these complicated uh, religions of the world or to be disrespectful of people who sincerely believe them. We should always be respectful of others who have other beliefs. But to contrast the God that they have the the hope that they have, if any, in salvation over and against the God of Scripture. How different the God of the Bible is when it comes to salvation. Their God is mighty in His demands. 
their God is mighty in his punishment or irrelevant in terms of hope. And our God is mighty to save. In those three of the world's great religions and countless others, it's all about man making their way to God, self-reliance, keeping the obligations, trying to outweigh the bad with the good, working out karma, paying for accumulating actions. Now contrast that with God who is so mighty that he does everything that is necessary to provide for salvation. He comes, he becomes one of us. He walks in the world that we are in. He is tempted by the same things that we have been tempted by but he doesn't sin, and so he is righteous. And then he takes our place on the cross, and he pays for that which we could not pay for. God did everything necessary for our salvation. What a mighty God we worship. Next in this passage is what to me is perhaps the most stunning part of it. And that is, after he has provided for salvation and the ultimate sacrifice of his one and only son, he rejoices over us. He rejoices over us. The pleasures of God in his children. Again, verse 17. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. You know what I thought of when I uh, first read this and then began to study it? The whole idea of rejoicing with loud singing. I thought of 30 years ago in January, Connie and I rushed to St. Mary's Hospital in St. Louis for the birth of our first child, a son, Nathan. I witnessed a miracle that day. Now, here's the thing, and I believe that with all of my children. We went through that, and it was very emotional for me. But here's the thing. If I had had Mark Rattray's voice, I am fully convinced that I would have stood up on a chair and sang the Hallelujah Chorus loud enough for everyone in all the other rooms and a couple floors above to hear me sing. But I didn't want Nathan's first memory being, no, Daddy, no, don't. don't." (laughs) If a dad, if a dad can rejoice over the birth of his child that way, How amazing it is that the God of the universe sings loudly over us. Did you catch that phrase? What is loud for God? For him to sing loud. It's amazing. Now, the truth is that When we face up to it, most of us don't think there's that much 
to sing over when it comes to us. Because of our sin, our disappointing behavior. Why would anyone sing loudly over us? Well, that's grace. It's because of his love. It's it's undeserved favor towards us. He is excited over his children. You see, that's, that's the story of the father and the prodigal son. The son rebels against the father. He goes against everything virtually that he has been raised to believe. The son goes out and lives his life the way he wants to live it, including because it didn't work out the way he had hoped, eating and living with the pigs. And then he wants to come home. Now, what's the picture when he comes home? It's not of a father standing there like this, waiting on him, and then, and then saying to some of his servants, look, you go tell him to go get cleaned up, get that mud off and smell off of him, and then I'll talk to him later on and see what he has to say. But instead, when he was afar off, the father runs to him and he envelops him mud and smell and all. And then he says, we're going to party because he was lost and now he's back. That's the father rejoicing over the son. I am convinced that when the father sees us, He doesn't focus upon our warts and our defects and upon our wounds and upon how we've disappointed him. He sees the perfect work of his perfectly obedient son, Jesus Christ, that covers us so that he rejoices over us with loud singing. Now, I've got to ask you the big question. Do you really believe that God is mighty to save? What about in Haiti? Is he mighty enough to save people out of voodoo, out of that kind of bondage? In Haiti? where three years ago a church is planted and now there's 1,200 people coming, at least. That's only because of a God who is mighty to save. Do you believe that he is mighty to save in Ukraine? A country still, at this point, coming out of a fog of Atheistic communism, a generation that, uh, generations rather, that have experienced that, many of them still alive. 
and the work is so hard and so slow. And others who have been under the bondage of a, a church that is just dry orthodoxy. Do you believe God is mighty to save there? When we, uh, I, I, the first time I went there, Adeline Wallace was talking to us about it, and, and she said, when you look around at the country and how it de- is deteriorated, she said, you are seeing uh, a country that has ignored God for so long. Is God mighty enough to save in Ukraine? What about over in our other area of focus in England? A country that once sent out pioneer missionaries that had full and vibrant churches. Now that is a country full of empty churches, they call them redundant, many of them being sold off uh, to be a, a tavern or Uh, something else for the community because nobody goes to them other than maybe Christmas Eve. They fill up and then they're empty most of the rest of the year. A country where one of our uh, church planters over there was excited about uh, the atheists uh, group that, that wanted to advertise on the public transportation something about God being dead or not, God not being there or whatever. And he was excited about that because he said, at least it's got people talking about God. We can't even get them to talk about God. A country where I've met one woman and as soon as she found out that I am a pastor, she said, oh, well, I guess you're here to save me, huh? And that's not untypical of the attitude there. Is God mighty enough to save people in England? How about Bulgaria and the work there that we heard of this morning? What about Africa? What about in Turkey? What about out in Colorado where the work is slow? In West Virginia where we have uh, ministries of working on homes in order to reach people for Christ? What about in Charleston, a church building upon the foundation of mercy ministries to a needy community? What about on our our campuses, the College of Charleston, USC, Clemson, where there are so many students that are away from home and, and they are rejecting all of the foundation that they have had, but they don't know what they're looking for. Is God mighty enough to save there? What about the sixth graders that are over at Crossroads School? They're getting so grown up that we bring over in the fall semester just to teach them the Bible. Is God mighty enough to save those students? Well, he's given us a glimpse. This year, 18 professions of faith. Last year, 18 professions of faith. God is mighty to save. What about our covenant children? 
children that grow up hearing these things, is he mighty enough to save them? Our youth. What about your parents? You who have unsaved parents or unsaved brothers or sisters or neighbors. And now here's the really big question. What about that person you thought of in the introduction to my sermon? The one that you've just about given up on and it's just hard for you to even stretch your faith to imagine that they'll ever change. Is God mighty enough to save that person? That's where your faith really comes home. He was a terrorist. He was radical in his religion. He took part in murders of people in the name of his religion. He was so zealous against Christianity that he went from house to house and he broke in and he would drag men out and women out and see that they were put in prison. He was the person that if, he, if, uh, if, if people of his day had heard the introduction to my sermon, they would have thought of him. I'm thinking of, they would say, Saul. Saul, who was met by Jesus. Saul, who was transformed by the one who is mighty to save and became the Apostle Paul. Where the terrorist became a pastor because God is mighty to save. The murderer became the one who talked about new life because God is mighty to save. The religious Pharisee that just couldn't quit talking about grace because God is mighty to save. That same God is in our midst. And he rejoices over us with loud singing. And he is mighty to save. Let's bow together.